Herzlich willkommen zum Modellansatz, der mathematische Podcast aus Karlsruhe mit Gudrun Täter und Sebastian Ritterbusch. Hallo Marta. This is uh, the first time we are meeting person to person before we had only email contact because I wanted to use my day here in London for a visit at UCL, University College London, to speak with colleagues about their mathematical research. And you were so kind to agree to meet me today and to speak about your research. Thank you for having me. <laughs> which is about um, photoacoustic tomography. So maybe um, since it's kind of puzzling me, what is photoacoustic about? What is this? So uh, first of all, so tomography is a way of seeing inside the object without uh, distracting it. So uh, we apply some sort of uh, measurement setup to it, to the object, and we use mathematics to extract the information about about the uh, composition of the objects, about the insides. Uh, so the usual, the usual setup in the tomography is that we can do something on the boundary of the object and we want to infer from that the information inside. And uh, photoacoustic tomography is a particular type of tomography that uses photo, that is using photoacoustic effect. So in photo, photoacoustic effect is like thunder. So basically you have a lightning strike There's a big bump coming out of it. So you have a light coming into, uh, coming inside, and you have a sound wave that uh, affects from 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 the uh, expansion, thermical mm -hmm. expansion. Uh, so basically, uh, this effect is used to couple two wavelengths in uh, the wavelength that is used to illuminate the object. So we have a, a short uh, pulse of in the near-infrared spectrum that we illuminate the object with. And this light is diffusely propagating through the object, and according to the, uh, uh, to the, to the optical properties of the object, it's being absorbed. And upon this absorption, we have the, uh, uh, we have the heating up of the, of the tissue and then, and then the rapid expansion that gives rise to the outgoing Uh, acoustic wave. So this is where the photo comes in and the acoustic comes out and then the, the, the workhorse is the photoacoustic effect. So what is very nice about the photoacoustic tomography, it is a so-called hybrid imaging modality where we are able to put the, the best of both worlds. So we have the, the good contrast that comes from the optics. So the optical uh, light is, uh, is absorbed uh, By, um, for example, there is a big difference in absorption between the oxygenated and desoxygenated hemoglobin, which is clinically relevant. So it has good clinically relevant contrast, but it has a very poor resolution. So if you were to apply the optical tomography that you can do, you end up with a very, very blurry image with low, low resolution. So this is where you measure the, the light coming out of the object directly. So... Uh, On, on the other hand, you have the ultrasound, so where you measure the transmission through, of the sound through the object. So this has a good resolution that comes from the acoustics, but uh, it has a poor uh, contrast because there is just not, not enough uh, absorption 
uh, acoustic absorption going on. So the, here we couple the, the best of both worlds. We take the, the contrast from the optics that is strong and clinically relevant, and we take the resolution from the ultrasound to read it out. And this is done for us in physics by the photoacoustic effect. Um, in your explanation, there I got the feeling that this is applied in um, for blood, yes. or for me medical reasons, biological reasons. So first, the, the light sensor that you get on your finger mm -hmm. uh, when you come to the hospital is a near infrared uh, sensor. So this is uh, this is the optical sensor. So. This is already the first uh, the, the, the first uh, indicator that uh, light is you know used uh, to to observe the oxygenation of the blood because mm -hmm. this is why they put the sensor on you and uh, the, the the application area of photoacoustical imaging so it is more still more experimental so there are some commercial mm -hmm. devices but it's still more experimental more the lab technology so it's mostly preclinical. So small, uh, small animal imaging for various various applications, looking at uh, at uh, tumor development, looking at tumor behavior, looking at drugs absorptions, this type of this type of things. And but it is also relevant in breast imaging, and uh, people are trying to to do some neonatal brain imaging. So of course the skull is in the way of the sound. And uh, yeah, so there, there's you know we are excited about the possibilities. So what um, kind of mathematical models can you use in order to make this a good uh, tool to see into objects? So this is quite interesting. So uh, it depends on the fidelity. So the pure photoacoustic imaging, as, as we know it, mm -hmm. uh, it is formally the acoustic. Uh, so initial problem for the wave equation is the forward problem. So basically you have an initial pressure that comes from the absorption of the, of the light. So, the, so this is form, this can be formulated as an initial value problem for the uh, for the wave equation where you just have the initial pressure and the derivative is equal to zero. That is corresponds to the assumption that this happening instantaneously. And uh, so this is just the wave equation for the forward problem. It is a free space propagation. And now your measurements are a set of, for example, some sort of microphones or some other sensors that, that you record the acoustic wave along the time. So over the time, the acoustic wave propagates through the detectors, and you, you are recording a time series at all of the microphones. So this is your data. And so this is what you are going to invert in the inverse problem. So now, if you had the ability to measure all around the object with the given fidelity uh, You know, with the resolution you, you, you want to achieve, uh, and if if you were in 3D and if you were smooth enough, as, a, as your sound speed uh, would be smooth enough, and if it would be not 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 trapping, then you would be able to reverse the time the wave field, and basically focus back on your initial pressure. So under this kind of rather stringent set of assumptions, especially it's problematic from the point of view of tomography, is the ability to measure all around. Uh, you can perform so-called time reversal, which is essentially a constraint wave problem where you uh, have a point constraints and your detectors over time that you just basically are focusing the wave field back. So in, in, for example, when you look at the geometry of the planar sensor, 
So there you have to mathematically assume the symmetry uh, around the, uh, L, um, with respect to the detector plane to take the ambiguity away. Mm -hmm. So in this case, you can think of this, uh, uh, of this time reversal as being a boundary value problem because the Neumann derivatives are zero because of the symmetry. So uh, uh, it can be thought of, the time reversal can be thought of as a boundary value problem in certain situations. Uh, now the question is, what happens if you are not able to collect the measurement? So in, in the planar detector situation, measuring all around the object would correspond to having infinite plane. <laughs> So you are usually not able to do that. Uh, so how how do you deal with it? So uh, there is uh, you you can in behavior in photoacoustic is quite similar to the behavior in in, in X-ray tomography here. So you are getting limited detector result in so-called limited uh, view artifacts, similar to the limited angle tomography, and those uh, those. Those can be can be slightly modified by using te uh, some techniques that correspond to smoothing the uh, smoothing at the edges of the detector. So these are kind of usual techniques that can be used to eliminate the the biggest fallout from the from the missing uh, angle that corresponds to particular lines in your reconstruction. Um, but the, the question remains, you know, if you if you want to if you d want to observe some, for example, time varying quantities, you don't have time to collect enough measurements. So in usual situations, you not only are limited by the geometry of your scanner, but also actually are not able to collect all the measurements that you scanner because thing is changing. So the situation is changing, so you are not able to to, to collect enough measurements. So we frequently deal with so-called subsample problems. Yeah. So in principle, there are quite a few problems you were addressing. The first problem is that um, from the very beginning, having measure, even if you have ideal measurements from the outside, you have to assume something about the inside in order to then read from these boundary values which, which you measure what's happening inside. And so to kind yeah, of read so off the geometry. usually assumes the knowledge of speed of sound. So of yeah. course, you could do the joint reconstruction of speed of sound and... Uh, photoacoustic signal. However, it would not be possible to do it only from photoacoustic measurements. So you have to add some measurements on top. So you have to have some sort of CT, uh, ultrasound CT combination. So it's not in, not, not, the data is not sufficient to reconstruct. Yes, and then the second problem is that, of course, you never have really um, ideally many measurements. So very often we just have a few. Exactly. <laughs> I would expect, yeah. So just a few, and then you have to come up with good ideas to make that work anyway. Yeah. And also, of course, this is um, heavily based on numerical methods, I guess. Yes, it is. So especially if it's... Uh, so the forward and... Uh, so, to, so the forward, backward... So backward being the adjoint... Mini, uh, okay, so the forward propagation is the initial value problem for the if equation. In this very particular situation, we can get something that we, let's call it pseudo-inverse, that is a time reversal. And uh, in, uh, or it's inverse in very specific situations. That, and what it is, it is a little bit fuzzy when you start to, when you come to the regime where you have limited samples. So when you have a limited measurements, it is not anymore very clear what this uh, time reversal corresponds to. 
And uh, so they have ambiguity how you deal with the locations that you are not measuring. So it, do you do you constrain them to zero or do you s- let them free and so on? So that's a big, uh, there is a lot of questions uh, associated how to understand uh, what time reversal becomes if a limited measurement. So that, however, what we know what happens is when you uh, when you have so-called back propagation, which is the adjoint. So the adjoint does not suffer from the problem <laughs> of limited measurements because you can adjoint the operator, your effective operator that is restricted to your measurements. You can adjoint this. And this results in a problem that's quite similar to the, to the but not exactly the time reversal problem. It is, uh, well, time reversal can be thought as a boundary uh, value problem with certain simplification. So the uh, the the adjoint problem is actually a time-varying source problem. So there is a big difference at the boundary. So in one, in the time reversal, the constraint is imposed point-wise in over time, and in the uh, uh, ad- varying, uh, time-varying source problem, you just add on top, basically, of what is happening. You're not, you are not overwriting the values. Mm. Do you have to develop um, special numerical tools in order that they are kind of stable under this um, kind of um, special situation that in general it's not really well posed and things like that? So we are using, uh, at the moment, mostly uh, so-called case-based methods, which are pseudo-spectral methods uh, which have time-stepping in a time direction and uh, use spectral expression for taking the derivative spatial. in a spatial direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, these methods uh, can be made stable and uh, they, uh, they can deal with, the, with our, so we can formulate our operators rigorously in this framework. There is a slight issue about that they are not able to capitalize from the point of view of performance on us measuring smaller number of sensors. So basically these methods will take exactly the same time, regardless how many measurements we take, which is slightly unsatisfactory. That's why in my group we are actually looking at a different approach. We are looking at uh, ray tracing based methods. So And so far we are convincing ourselves that they are well suitable for photoacoustic. And this, uh, so the underlying workhorse here is the WKP expansion where you have a high-frequency asymptotic assumption. So you, are en- you end up solving a, a Hamiltonian system to recover the, the ray trajectories, and you, uh, you are solving a transport equation for your amplitude. So using this, this idea, we've been, we are developing at the moment a ray-based solver for photoacoustic for the, for the forward and for the adjoint problem. Uh, yeah, so this is this this solver will scale linearly with the uh, with the number of measurements as it is happening in other uh, tomographic modalities. For example, for the uh, X-ray tomography, there is there is every measurement is array. So basically, you have uh, it scales exactly with the number of measurements you are taking. So this we have a similar behavior for the, with this solver. We have similar behavior for the photoacoustic. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, this is, of course, a complete shift of the point of view you take to the problem. As the one which you were prescribing firstly, that you have like that you have very strong view on that uh, you have a prescription as a partial differential equation in a certain setting. And then you have this um, time and space you have to resolve. And then you just decide for classical ways how to do that. So in, if you know the, since it's diffusion, it's a well-established operator where you really can work with the spectrum, which you know very well. And this is kind of a fast thing to do and very stable um, in the spatial um, resolution. And then doing a time-stepping and maybe adapting the time-stepping to how things really evolve. This is kind of, uh, I don't want to say, um, yeah, but it's, it's, kind, of, it's of kind of established. Yeah. Yeah, so, and, and you would also use this in, in other circumstances kind of similarly, not in precisely the same way, but similarly. Um, of course, if you just take the point of ray tracing, this is a completely different way because now you sit on your measurement with your mind and you follow the ray which this measurement gives you. Exactly. So um, it is it is a shift, and uh, there are some compromises, of course. So because the ray tracing will follow, it's it not capable to do reflections. So we are kind of assuming as, uh, that we have no reflections of that are meaningful, which is quite correct assumption in in photoacoustic, where the variation of the speed of sound is very minor. So uh, it. Uh, if the speed of sound would be would be uh, constant, then of course our rays would be straight lines. Mm -hmm. But um, the whole point would be that it, that it's not. So we kind of are constructing the ray trajectories. So interestingly enough, it has not been used before in photoacoustic. Yeah, it sounds a bit strange to me as well. Yeah, but it makes yeah. I mean, sense, we, but it is not exactly just the the the, the, the so our solutions are not the uh, node wavefronts. So what, what we do, we, uh, we think of our method as, uh, as uh, ray tracing discretization of the Green's function uh, formulation for the solution for the, for the, yeah. uh, for the acoustic equation. So uh, basically we have a Green's function formulation for, the, for both, for the forward and for the adjoint problem. The one is the uh, they have a very very small difference in there. So and uh, the assumption is that our initial uh, initial uh, ex wave expansion happens in a small ball that is of homogeneous sound speed, and then as as we go further, then the sound speed can change. But then we use the the Green's the homogeneous Green's function expansion, and then we move it along the rays. Using uh, using the the ray the ray equations, so using the amplitude uh, amplitude so using the ray trajectories and the amplitude equations. So we think of the ray trajectories as discretization, and then, and then you have the of course the Jacobians and everything involved, and then you have the uh, amplitude equation that gives you how this how this initial uh, Green's function is moved along your non-homogeneous sound speed. So this is our yeah, it's it's, a, it's a combination, mind. yes, yeah. because you wouldn't do that. So with the real kind of classical ray tracing, this is more like um, having a possibility to show things as they um, look like in the real life on the computer. So it comes from, from games, and uh, there are well-established fast things um, how to do that. Yeah. And then you always have this problem that um, in order to make it re really realistic, you need a lot of rays, and this takes 
a lot of computer power. And now you make this disadvantage to your advantage because you just take a few <laughs> with of your course, few measurements. However, we still, uh, so we still kind of suffer from the fact that, um, but it is almost like a cone in tomography. Mm. It suffers from the fact that there is a source and then the, the, things are, the, the rays are diverging. So here is also... Just from the algorithmic point of view, when we do this, we think always of the detector, mm. not on the because the source is actually initial process. Source is the thermo in the domain, so the whole solvers are constructed with the focal point being the sensor. But this kind of has a dis disappearance of the of the cone beam, as you would have in ray. But they are just now wavy things because of the varying sun speed. Yeah, <laughs> wavy. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's clear. <laughs> yeah, because it's not uh, light, it's, it's sound. But it's all waves, so things work similarly. Um, I remember that we um, tried to do something similar because I was kind of um, suggesting that it's a bit crazy. But um, um, in the thing that um, for persons which can't see very well or are even blind, um, to make a room visible for them with acoustic information, And so, uh, yes, and so there is also the problem that you have uh, a lot of information which has to be um, dealt with um, kind of immediately. Otherwise, it doesn't really help the person. So if you have to sit down one hour in the room in order to learn about it, it's a bit too long because in, ideally you would like to move through the room and immediately get the information back with the help of acoustic signals. And um, there the idea was also to make this ray tracing for, for the far and um, the Green's function for the near uh, near the head and then to kind of couple this in between in order to be able to do this really fast. And um, the additional thing why this got a bit more interesting was that uh, then you can really take a scan of the actual head of the person so that you really have the correct geometry and uh, you can make this really precise for someone who is learning with the system. It's really helpful uh, for navigation. So the two differences here, so the always problem is transmission mm. problem, so it's, like, it's not reflecting. So we yeah. are actually not capturing reflections. So yeah, and, but this energy is lost for yeah, us. Yeah. I was uh, thinking the same because um, in the far thing we also completely neglect that it's reflecting here. It's only reflecting at the boundary of the room. Yeah, and so this helps us as well. Yeah, and then the second thing is that uh, we use the Green's function and in a slightly unusual way because we usually use it yeah, yeah. everywhere. Yeah, absolutely unusual. Yeah, so it's just, uh, it, 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 it is just the discretization of the Green's function uh, op uh, formulation using the rays that you computed from your ray tracer and uh, then using the amplitude to the equation to evaluate, to evolve your Green's function along the rays. It's nothing, nothing different than that, but it took us a while to realize it. <laughs> Yeah, and then of course you always get a, a few surprises because it doesn't really change the situation that you have. Um, not the complete information is just exaggerating a bit. So it's just that you have a bit of information and you want to find out um, a lot from that. And there's always the problem that it can lose stability if you are not careful enough. You just imagine things to be there or the computer imagines things to be there um, because the measurements are not enough or faulty or 
you have a wrong assumption about the insights which go into the problems, things like that. Yeah, so the artifacts start coming in here. So that's why we usually, uh, so this was, we spoke quite a while about the forward operator yeah. and then how we, how we deal with those. So the, there's a, the other side of the coin is, of course, how to solve the inverse problem. So this is our favorite workhorse here is to use variational methods. So to compensate, to formulate the problem as a trade-off between the data fitting for functional and some kind of prior knowledge, regularization mm. functional. And uh, so, for example, uh, we have the typ typical L2 data fitting functional with our photoacoustic operator as a forward operator. So really AX minus P, <laughs> the L2 norm of the residual. And uh, on the other hand, we have the uh, regularization functional. So our, we are quite partial to total variation, but also we have done a fair amount of work with curvelets. So there's a, quite a lot of um, motivation to in wave uh, uh, equation to consider curvelets. So uh, curvelets are, are almost the optimal optimally sparsely propagated through the wave equation. Uh, and uh, curvelets are also almost optimal representation of, of images with C2 small boundaries. So they are, there is a motivation for representing your initial pressure from coming from the imaging uh, analogy. So the initial uh, your initial pressure to formulate it in a curvelet basis because it's going to be sparse because it's probably an object with kind of C2 boundary. Mm. On the other hand, uh, once you represent it, when you propagate it through your wave equation, it should propagate optimally sparse. So you should have a solver that is kind of as diagonal as possible. Yeah, so this is the this is this is a part of the motivation. So using this motivation, we straight different ways <laughs> to look at uh, to look at, at the, the curvelet. So in particular, we looked at various ways of uh, representing the data and the initial pressure. So the initial pressure is pretty straightforward. You just represent your 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 image in a curvelet basis, and you formulate the variational. A variational problem with the L2 uh, data fitting penalty and the L1 curvelet penalty, and it works very, very nicely. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you can look at the data representation. So uh, we looked at uh, this is slightly straying from our original motivation, but um, we looked at reconstruction of the, of the curvelet data on the sensor in over the time. So we took every time frame on the detector as, as an image. So as the wave passes through the, through the detector, it just it, 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 it leaves this type of wavy, wavy patterns on it. And then we took them as images and uh, represented them in the Kevlet basis. So this, uh, this worked nicely, but it, it, it does not allow for high level of subsampling. So uh, it, I don't know, maybe up to 25% or something. So uh, you can dispense with, uh, with three quarter of your measurements basically in using this way. So what is uh, attractive about this is that you uh, are reconstructing your 
uh, your wave field, each of these problems is just a standard compress sensing problem. So compress sensing has been... It's kind of a classical tool. Quite, yeah, quite, quite a classical by now. Mm. So, but uh, using a certain uh, sampling technology, we have a, a classical compress sensing problem. And uh, they are small because they are just 2D images, and then you, 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 you do it, can do it in parallel over time. So what this, of course, uh, the drawback of this approach is that there is no connection between the, in the reconstruction of the data, there's no connection between the individual data time frames. So this is, you are not capitalizing of them being uh, slices through the, through the space-time space -time, mm -hmm. uh, wave representation. So that's why we had to look at uh, looking at the representation of the space-time wave as a curvelet. So this results in the higher compression ratio. So uh, you can have probably double your compression uh, ratio to still uh, obtain reasonably good results. So this, of course, because it takes the whole wave field in a space-time uh, representation, this this respects the connections. There are certain things uh, coming from physics that you, uh, the restriction of the domain and so on that you can, you can use to your advantage and actually you have to use it to make this method work at all uh, to reconstruct. The benefit is that it, you are still having a classical compress sensing problem exactly as in the other case this is just bigger hmm. but there's one. So in a sense, if you want to parallelize, you have to uh, you have to make your you you have to make your algorithm parallel, which is more difficult than the trivial parallel, parallelism that comes from the yeah, if different T's. Treat each time as exactly. something which is independent of the other ones, yeah. then it's parallel from the exactly. very beginning. Exactly, and mm -hmm. then here you have to spend time on thinking how you do the compress sensing in parallel, if this is an issue. Because this is quite a big problem. And uh, the uh, because it could be uh, it would be at least hundred by hundred by so we heavily oversampled the, the the time uh, by the measurement setup so it will be about four hundred times so, so there will be one of the practical problems would have the dimension of hundred by hundred by four hundred so it's, it's not very small you have to reconstruct image of this volume um, yeah so the you. You still are solving the, the, the classical compress sensing problem, so this is good news. And, and then you are sticking it into your favorite uh, wave inversion, uh, for example, into time reversal. Because you have reconstructed the data, so if you are happy to use time reversal on the complete data, so you now have a, have a complete data which has been reconstructed, and you can use any photoacoustic reconstruction you would like to. So for example, using the, the case-based methods. Um, you, in this way, you can deal with nonlinearity in acoustic, in an acoustic problem, for example, something like acoustic absorption, because this is just the data, and then you can do any nonlinear acoustics. Well, you can't do the nonlinear acoustics, at least not rigorously, inside the compress sensing framework, because compress sensing is usually quite... I mean, it has been extended, but the classical setup is that you have a linear operator. Yeah, also because putting the nonlinear on top of everything um, 
um, throws away so many um, ideas and the numerics which you were speaking about. This yeah, is so really putting hard. in the operator in yeah. the first place that yeah. is not random, yeah. uh, but is uh, randomly subsampled something, some linear operator. So first of all, you already have to deal with the fact that you have a photoacoustic operator where you, your contours are in a Fourier space, your contours in the corners are collapsing. So you have a singularity, uh, the uh that corresponds to the uh to the equal, to the to the propagate to the frequency in time and space being equal mm-hmm. and then this corresponds basically to the waves that are propagating uh how to transversally to the detector so this is the detector so pro- the, the propagating along the detector the way I can't see yeah. that really mm-hmm. yeah so uh yeah, so that so the, the, there is something to so it is probably much nicer operator still than the than the uh, radon transform for example. We know how the singular values behave. We know that we have a square root decay of the singular values. So I am not really familiar with the results for photoacoustic on what are the singular values in this in this uh, in this framework, because you can argue that the filtering is part of the problem. So there is not a filtering problem. There is also not a drop of the sobolev of space index as you have in the Radon transform. So you, you're matching, you are not mapping to one half, but you are mapping between the same sobolev spaces. So uh, the problem could be argued to be better posed. So it's, 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 it's a question for future research. And of course, uh, um, coming back to the to the curvelet representation, so that we have something that is called uh, wavelet vaguelet representation, and uh, for the radon transform, we know that curvelets provide us this bioorthogonal framework. So we have uh, corresponding curvelets in the image space to corresponding curvelets in the data space, and this is well illustrated by the microlocal analysis and the propagation of, of of the singularities. So basically, if we have an edge in the image. And you take the measurement that is tangential to this edge. This edge is going to show in your data, and then there's going to be a corresponding curvelet in both. While if you have a slightly tilted integration line, you will going to smear over the uh, this this edge, and this edge is going to uh, to be smeared in your data. Um, yeah. So there is the this, uh, this, the uh, there is the idea of the curvelet uh, vagulet of wavelet vagulet the composition. So this should go through for the photoacoustic setup, but um, so far it has not been done. Not been done, but it's, it's on my list. <laughs> yeah, I not not only mine. So <laughs> and that's kind of funny because um, I was just. Um, thinking that it would be a good moment to ask you what would be next steps and then they were answering oh, that by so yourself. Oh, so next steps. <laughs> uh, so, okay, this is only just one. So what are the other ones? Oh, so we are we are trying to, to work on the dynamic imaging. Uh, so, so this really was my time. primary motivation yeah. for using the subsampling and acceleration. Mm. So, uh, of course... Uh, so so far, I just uh, only spoke about the level of reconstruction we can get when we deconstruct the data, and then we apply the photo, the, the acoustic reconstruction independently. So we have connected these two things. So we applied the, uh, we have reconstructed the initial pressure uh, using the, for example, total variation or curvelet uh, framework for the regularization. Mm-hmm. 
so this 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 gives us better results but uh defin- depending of course on on the particular measurement setup but uh for the particular phantom uh, we produce some uh, nice mathematically nice set of measurements that allows us to to do any subsampling that is consistent because we have a stop motion data set so of course the this being a stop motion data set has uh, it loses the, the 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 fluency of the motion but you have to start somewhere so taking this in data set as indication so we had pr- troubles moving beyond the uh, subsampling ratio of 1 in 8 with this approach so uh, we decided to look into uh solving the uh, uh registration and reconstruction problem together by solving the time dependent for the time dependent initial pressure so of course this imposes another extra layer so you consider the object uh, evolving over the time so you have a much higher dimensional problem and they they are all coupled and they are coupled by the regularization term in our case we include the optical flow term so the very simplest uh, f- form is the transport Equation, so you are including an extra transport term, plus some extra regularization because this wouldn't be enough to reconstruct uh, on the uh, on the uh, uh, on the pressure in each time step. So we usually use total variation here, and uh, we also use the total variation uh, on uh, on each component of the velocity in the optical flow term. So in this in this framework you obtain a problem that is not convex anymore. So so far we have been trying to pull Stay some convex. Yeah. convex. <laughs> so uh, it is biconvex and can be solved. There is a, a increasing amount of 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 research on on non-convex solvers. So in particular for this part, for the for this problem that is this biconvex structure. And uh, so uh, the biconvex iteration itself is rather poorly, has rather poor properties are rather poorly because it only converges in the objective uh, function if you make it. So if you increase the, decrease the energy sufficiently, then you will get the convergence in objective uh, obje- objective uh, function value. Uh, you can uh, apply other methods. Uh, so here, for example, the Palm algorithm, which is um, explicitly taking gradient steps alternatingly. So this can be shown to be globally co- convergent under the Kurdikawiasiewicz assumptions. So uh, we are looking into this uh, into this tube. Of, of course, this is now ex- explicit scheme, which will ex- require uh, appropriate discretization of the of the uh, transport term and so on. There's a whole universe to be explored. I exactly. See that. Yeah. Yeah. So we are looking at the dynamic problems also in other applications. So because photoacoustic applications, in a sense, it is more complicated because the forward operator is a bit more expensive. Yeah. So of course, um, at this point of our conversation, it's absolutely obvious that this is so interesting stuff you're dealing with every day. So there is no surprise that you stay with it. My question is, how did you uh, come to be at this point? So, um, what, what kind of decisions did you make after finishing your education at school? 
such that you um, are now working on this type of problems? At school, okay, we're starting at school. So uh, I, I, finished, uh, I, I, st I finished school in Poland, so I was very fortunate to, uh, to go through the Eastern elite-based system, so where you have uh, exams at every, every, every corner and you basically are in a very, end up in a very selective school. So I went to the grade school and I loved math. I loved I had a great math teacher that happened to be my aunt, <laughs> but she was really the best math teacher we had. And um, however, I was conscious that I have to earn my my living. And uh, being, we are talking now of 20 years back in Poland, it was pretty obvious that it's not the mathematics I could study to do this. So that's why I decided to to pursue computer science. The family situation brought me very quickly. After a year, I, I, I moved to Germany. I could not uh, start, start my studies in Germany because we didn't have the mutual agreement between recognition of the A-levels back in, back in the day. So I had to study for a year, so this, I decided I was going to study computer science at the technical university, and then I continued this in Germany, but without any recognition of my previous previous studies. So this was a slightly annoying situation, but... Uh, yeah, so it was a small university in the south of Hamburg, so I guess it says it all. I was very fortunate with the particular year. So the students were great, and many of us went to do PhDs all across the world, basically. And we were a very small group, and I think it was the second year they have taken on the degree. And um, I just decided I want to try it all. And I ended up deciding that I want to go back to math, back to math. So this has been after after doing five years of kind of uh, equally split engineering, mathematics, and computer science degree. So I have a certain background in engineering, and I have uh, good computing skills from from this degree. And then I reverted to the uh, to the PhD in mathematics at the at the small university. For, for, for personal reasons and uh, personal and visa related reasons. Yeah, and then I, I uh, well, after that, uh, well, after that, I, um, I, had a, I had a husband and then we, had, we suffered under the two body problem. <laughs> so we had started to look around for, we have been very close in our research, so he's a mathematician as well. And uh, we've been looking for double position. And then it so came that there was an option for both of us to go to Manchester. But my husband would be doing something that I have been doing in my PhD that I, however, was quite happy to change. And I would be going uh, to pastures new to do inverse problems. And uh, so Bill Lionheart uh, uh, had a grant uh, in security uh, application for X-ray imaging for very kind of particular type of scanners. They were not uh, conforming to the mathematical theory, let's say this. <laughs> so I went there and then my adventure started with the, uh, with the inverse problems from the very particular angle because I think the 3D X-ray imaging, so especially if you depart the the, 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 the circular trajectory, so the helical cone beam imaging is, is kind of quite close community, so there is some people in inverse problems that, that work with this setup, but this has its own community, so it was kind of being in inverse problems, trying to tap into this, not, 
and not really being an inverse problems person. So I ended up, I think, uh, <laughs> doing something with disregard to all those areas. <laughs> but this is how it started. And um, from there, it was uh, a path of, of trying to balance the personal life. So not to have the not to be split because we had to go somewhere. So we converged through. So so my husband through Reading and I went straight to to London. So to the place that was big enough to to cater for both of us. Yeah, and um, you will probably stay here in London. <laughs> Let's hope so. So Brexit allowing. <laughs> Yeah, okay, this is more like the the question to a permanent position. Oh, I have a permanent yeah. position, yeah. yeah because. We both have a permanent position here. So this is, of course, and so this is a great university. So the, the colleagues and the research environment and uh, the opportunities are fantastic. We are a little bit short of for space, but... Yeah, this is always kind of coinciding. We know this from Karlsruhe. When you have a lot of excellent people working and they attract all the money and paying with that new persons, which were not planned when the buildings were built, then at a certain moment in time, you get with overcrowded office buildings. And then with engineering, it's even harder because they also have to find place for big machines. <laughs> yeah, labs and things. Yeah. So, for example, um, Karlsruhe's tries to be um, great with um, development of new car types and then you have to have a few cars of them available somewhere and have a space where oh, they is can... Is it the electric car? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is it the... <laughs> um, uh, what was it called? Electricity something B. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it has to be great uh, creativity on top of the university to find spaces which are available in, in town. Yeah, so that sounds all quite good. <laughs> thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure.